0: began a series a couple of weeks ago called Servants and Shepherds, looking at this topic of leadership. And the first week, we said that the leader's identity uh, is to rest in Christ. Uh, not in the hamster wheel of his own performance, but in what Jesus has already accomplished for him. Right? Jesus has done everything necessary to approve me before God. And that means that there's no one left to please. There's no one left to fear. There's nothing left to gain or to earn. Jesus has already accomplished all of that for me. And so I can rest secure in him. And then out of that new identity, uh, life is given a new trajectory, a new path. Now, what the Christian leader does is he follows Jesus, the same path that Jesus walked, down into death. And up into life. Now we should say, I think I said this last week, not in the same way that Jesus did, right? We we don't need any other saviors. We don't need uh, Christian leaders who think they're little mini messiahs. That creates problems all their own, right? We don't follow Jesus to be the Messiah. We follow Jesus because we're we're becoming like Him, and so we uh, go down into death. And up into life, and here in a minute, we're going to see some examples of what that looks like. Um, so then we need to ask the question, right? If we have a new identity and a new path to walk, what is it that drives us? What kind of heart does that new identity create? What motive is it that drives us down that path? So today we're going to talk about the leader's heart. Uh, and we're going to do so from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So if you would turn there, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12, if you're uh, using the Bible that's in the chair, it should be on page 986. What kind of heart does the Christian leader have? What drives him? Paul says this, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You were witnesses, and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. All flesh is like glass, grass and its glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that, like you, it is good and true and infallible and trustworthy. And Lord, now we pray that you would write its eternal truths on our hearts, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you a little bit of context so you know what's going on in the, in the passage that I just read. Uh, if you want the back story for this passage, you could go to the book of Acts, uh, which is the story of the early church, how the, how the church after Jesus grows and develops. And in Acts 16 and 17, uh, you see Paul and Silas and Timothy making their way around the Roman world, talking about Jesus, sharing the good news of Jesus. Uh, and that brings us to one important point, and it's this, that there is no individual ministry. Uh, Even though Paul's name is the one we hear most often and he's the one who writes this letter, Paul is not alone and Paul is not a loner, right? Paul always did ministry in teams. When we think about leading in the church, we need to think not about individuals but as teams. The church is a family and it is led by a group of men called elders, right? So Uh, So ministry is done in teams, not by individuals, and as they're making their way around, they stop in the city of Philippi, Uh, and things go well in Philippi, at least for a little while, and then things don't go well, and that's kind of the common refrain of Paul's story. Uh, Paul gets on the wrong side of some powerful people in Philippi, and he and his friend Silas get thrown in prison. Now, This is where you see that path I was talking about, that leadership path, because Paul and Silas are unjustly thrown in prison. So that's a that's a death, right? That's going down. But the result of their imprisonment is that the jailer comes to know Jesus and the church in Philippi is born. So you see the path, right? They go down into death. They yield themselves up. They're imprisoned unjustly. But the result is life, because if they hadn't gone into prison, the Philippian jailer wouldn't have heard them singing hymns to God in the middle of the night. He wouldn't have seen God rescue them from the prison and say, what must I do to be saved? Right. So down into death, up into life. Um, Then they leave Philippi and they end up in the city of Thessalonica. And same thing. Things go well. And then they don't. Uh, This newborn church in Thessalonica comes under attack. Paul and Silas and Timothy are forced to leave by night under cover of darkness. Uh, So they're forced out of the city. And so 1 Thessalonians is Paul's letter of encouragement to them. Right? Things have continued, this church continues to be attacked, continues to come under pressure. And Paul is writing them. uh, And actually, chapter 1 is Paul just saying how much he's thankful for them. He thanks God for their faith under pressure. And that their trust in God has become an example to the surrounding area. Paul says, we don't even have to say anything. Uh, they just hear about what's happening in Thessalonica and they believe, right? So that's their, that's their testimony. Again, you see that path down into death, up into life. Now in 1 Thessalonians 2, what we just read, Paul begins defending himself against some false accusations from his opponents. So people would come behind Paul, wherever he'd been, and they would say things about Paul that were not true. And so Paul uh, defends himself against those accusations. And his defense is pretty simple. You notice over and over again in the passage it says, you know, you know, you yourselves know, you remember. Paul is just calling them to remember. Against those false accusations, he just says, hey, remember what it was like when we were with you. Remember how we conducted ourselves. Remember how we lived among you. And so Paul points back to his example to reveal his heart. Paul says, you know our motives because we were with you. You know what drove us. You, know, you remember how we were. And so he proves uh, his heart by pointing, by reminding them of how he led them. And, and what is it that drives Paul? Paul. What is it that motivates him and Timothy and Silas? What's in his heart? And the answer is love. Love drives the Christian leader. That's what's in his heart. And so we're going to look at two things today. First, Paul's love for God and his gospel and his love for others. Love for God and his gospel and love for others. Uh, First off, love for God and his gospel uh, you need to know that in the first century, traveling teachers were pretty normal. You had lots of teachers and philosophers. We might call them snake oil salesmen, right? who would make their way around to the different cities, uh, and they would just pontificate, right? They would speak, and they would talk that selling any kind of way of life, does this sound remotely familiar, right? It's still happening, right? Even today, you have motivational speakers who get paid lots and lots of money, lots of retired politicians, Right And they come around and they get paid money, and they tell you how to live life because they're clearly better at it than you are, right, and we go and we pay money and we listen to them um, and so that was that was common in the first century, uh, and it's apparent it seems apparent that that's what people are saying about Paul, right that he's uh, he's coming around saying things so that uh, his words weren't true, but he was just trying to get their approval and make a quick buck and Paul says. You know better. You remember. You know. Right? He says there in verse 1, our coming to you was not in vain. It wasn't empty. Uh, it wasn't fruitless. It wasn't lots of fancy words with no result. God did something when we were together. In fact, he says, we we came to you after being shamefully treated at Philippi, which I mean, if you think about what we said about what happened in Philippi and then again in Thessalonica, you would not look at Paul and his friends and say, This is a recipe for success. Everywhere they go, they make people mad. We should do that. Right? Can you like you can imagine that strategy session after Philippi around the campfire, they're like, Well that didn't go well. You know? As they're massaging the the bruises and cuts on their ankles from the stocks that they'd been put in. If anything, right, that would be a good time to say, you know what, you said this. Let's not say that anymore. Let's do this over here. And if that's the goal, right, if the goal is to make money or win approval, then you change the message. But again and again throughout the passage, Paul repeats, it's God's gospel, the gospel of God, the gospel of God. This is God's good news. Paul says we're just messengers. In fact, that's exactly what he says in Uh, Verse 4, we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. It's his message. We're just messengers. And you know what what happens to the messenger, right? Paul has a heart for God. He has a love for God, and he has a love for his gospel. And so he keeps speaking it even at great personal cost to himself. right? He says in verse 3, Our appeal, so our invitation to you, does not spring from error. It's not false, it's true. It doesn't spring from impurity. right? We're not trying to do anything shady, nor any attempt to deceive. We don't want to lie to you. Look at verse 5. We never came with words of flattery, as you know nor with a pretext for greed, right? We're not trying to say this on the front end, but really on the back end, we're aiming to make some money. Paul says, no, we didn't didn't do any of that stuff. God is our witness. Verse 6, we don't seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. That's pretty apparent because he didn't get a whole lot of it. So what does that tell us about Leadership, the kind of people that we're looking for to lead the church. What is it that motivates a Christ-following leader? Not greed. Uh, if, if you think vocational ministry, my wife likes to say uh, the only thing that pays worse than a public school teacher is being in vocational ministry. Right? right? So it's not greed. Uh, we're not trying to get anything out of anybody. Not a desire to please people. Or get glory from people. Those would all be false motives. The only motive that remains is the motive of love. So pray for leaders who don't make much of themselves. Pray for leaders that want to please God and have a heart for his good news. I remember a, a good friend of mine uh, when he was converted in the age of 21. It was the first time he'd ever heard this gospel of grace. He'd been in church, uh, at least for parts of his life. And when he heard the good news for the first time, he said, I've got to tell everybody I know. That's what we want. People who are so captivated by the gospel of grace that they say, I've got to tell other people. I've got to let people know. That's Paul's motivation as he goes around. He sees people trapped in bondage and shame and guilt. And he says, I've got good news for you. Repent and believe in Jesus so no error, no impurity, no deception, no greed. We're not aiming to please men, but God. Look for leaders who don't seek their own glory. And be leaders who don't seek your own glory. Love for God. What about love for others? Paul says there in verse 6, he says we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. That word apostle means to be sent out. That means to be like an, an official ambassador. And so Paul says we could have made demands because of that title, right? We have some authority. We have some weight that we could have thrown around. But we chose not to. We chose not to make use of our privileges and rights as apostles of Christ. Instead, he said, instead of throwing our weight around, verse 7, we were gentle among you. We were gentle not demanding, and then look at the the beautiful images of God of of, uh, of his leadership that he uses here. He uses two, and it points us to parenting. He says, uh, "We were like a nursing mother taking care of her own children." I mean, think about the power of that imagery. Uh, a, a nursing mom is literally giving of herself, literally giving of her own life and essence to sustain and nourish her child, right? I mean, you can't get probably a closer picture of self-sacrifice. And now, and we, we see that and we think, oh, well, that's sweet, you know, that's cute and cuddly. But any woman who's ever nursed a child will tell you that's not as sweet, especially in the middle of the night, right? It's not probably, and, it, and it's really inconvenient, It's really costly because you have to stop whatever you're doing and go do that. But that's the picture that Paul gives of his leadership, of Timothy's leadership, of Silas's leadership. He says, we gave of ourselves to nourish you. And I love this verse. So being affectionately desirous of you. The end of it says, we loved you so much. We were ready to share with you not only the good news, but also our very souls, our very lives, our very selves. Paul says, we didn't just come to give you a message. right? Uh, let's go back to that celebrity motivational speaker, speaker model for just a second. Let's say that I preach to you this morning, and it's powerful and wonderful and all of the above, great message, etc. And then I walk right out that door and don't speak to a soul. And you don't see me again until the next week when I come up here and give you another powerful, rousing message and then walk out that door and never see you again. Right? What would you begin to think? If I spoke to you about grace and love and care but never showed any of it, would any of that grace and love and care ever be communicated? No, Paul says, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the good news, but our very own lives. The life of the leader is one of selfish, uh, selfless devotion. We give our lives as well as the gospel. That's what leadership looks like in the church. And then he says he's like a father. He says we, they worked night and day so they wouldn't be a burden to the church. And he says again, God is witness there in verse 10 how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you. And then he says this in verse 11. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you. And charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. So now the image shifts. Yes, like a self-sacrificing mother nourishing her child with her own body. Now to a father, right? The child is older and it's the role of the father to come along and say, walk this way. Go this way. Exhorting, calling out, calling along, encouraging and comforting, right? This way is not going to be easy. And so coming alongside, giving the pat on the back, and then charging, saying this is the way it has to be, right? So you hear there that that mixture of uh, stern words and comforting words that is the ministry of a father. Also, not a very convenient path to walk, not always a very fulfilling path to walk, as many of you can attest but it's a self-sacrificing path. In fact, we see, uh, we see the relational fallout of parents who serve themselves rather than their children all the time. In fact, many of us can say uh, that the wounds we bear, the scars we have, are from parents who serve themselves rather than us, rather than their children. And when parents serve their children rather than themselves, when they give of themselves to serve their children, we typically see the healthiest families, do we not? Not always, not a guarantee, right? Paul says leadership in the church is like that. It's like a nursing mom or a caring dad. Where does this drive come from? How do we get it? I love the fact that he says um, in verse 12, charged you to walk. Walk, that's a common frame, refrain for Paul to describe the Christian life. Uh, how amazing is walking? It's, it's pretty normal, isn't it? We've kind of been trained to think that, that Christianity is this series of explosive big events, right? That That Christianity is this event. But really, it's a walk. It's unspectacular progress, as one commentator put it unspectacular progress in a Godward direction. That's what, that's what the walk looks like. That's what life looks like. So what motivates that walk? What motivates that kind of leadership? Look again at verse 12. It says to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He points us back to God's grace. Right. It's remarkable. Paul Paul doesn't say, stop sinning, you idiots. He doesn't say, get your act together. Now There are a few places where Paul has to get stern. But most of the time when Paul is speaking a corrective word, he says, remember. Remember whose you are. Remember who you are. Remember, God calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He's already given it to you. Just answer the call. That's what motivates a life of love. And that's what motivates us to lead in love. Because God has already given us the kingdom and the glory. And all we have to do is walk towards him. Amen. Steve, would you come up and pray for us, brother?